Today is day 48 of the war against Hamas. In today's episode, we're going to tell two stories about healthcare. We're going to start by taking you into the tunnel underneath Shifa Hospital and exposing Hamas's cynical use of medical facilities. Then we're going to talk about actual medical care, from the medical officers responding to the massacre of October 7th to the search and rescue operators extracting wounded IDF soldiers from Gaza. But first, I'm your host, Major Libby Weiss, and this is Mission Brief, the official IDF podcast where we take you behind the scenes of the women and men defending the people of Israel. Before we hear more about the Shifa Hospital, I want to provide some important context. There are a few things that we have known for a long time, but which bear repeating. One, Hamas is a terror organization that has repeatedly stated its goal of wiping Israel off the map. The United States, Canada, Japan, and the European Union member states all recognize Hamas as a terror organization. Two, Hamas wages its war on the West by exploiting Western values. How? Well, Hamas deliberately places weapons, command and control centers, tunnels, and more in civilian areas, such as mosques, schools, hospitals, really anywhere where civilians will be located. During the past few weeks, we found an RPG under a crib and rockets under a young girl's bed. Three, Hamas does this because it values killing Israelis more than it values the lives of Palestinians. Let's hear about this from someone who was there on the ground. Actually, under the ground. Lieutenant Masha Michelson is an officer in the International Press Office in the IDF Spokespersons Unit. Yesterday, she went to Shifa and into the tunnel that we revealed earlier this week. We got to the hospital courtyard, got off the APCs, and we started walking towards the Qatari building. The shaft is at the base of the hospital. And if you enter the shaft and you turn left into the tunnel, the tunnel is directly under the Qatari building. The Qatari building is another one of the buildings inside the Shifa complex. Of course, Hamas's tunnel network extended underneath there too. You stand next to the Qatari building, you look at it, and there's a kind of mountain of sand that they dug out of the ground. And beyond that is the hospital courtyard. So you hear the children playing outside. And as I'm hearing this, I'm walking down towards the shaft, which is insane. The shaft is fairly easy to get down. I lowered myself into it, and the tunnel spreads out to your, my left and to my right. Now, if you're listening to this, I just want to make sure you're not picturing a small dirt tunnel. These are excavated tunnels with concrete ceilings, electricity, and even air conditioning. The tunnel is several meters underground. It is tall enough to walk up straight. It stretches to the left of us. There were hundreds of meters more that were locked off for security reasons. The left side uh, was secured by a soldier. We couldn't go there. And on the right-hand side, the tunnel, which... Standard Hamas architecture, cement blocks on the walls, cement arches on the ceiling, wiring and everything, air going through it. And I start seeing rooms. There was a bathroom, what we presume was a dormitory with an air conditioning unit. And as you go forward, I saw the kitchenette and I saw more bathrooms and another dormitory. And it takes a turn and it goes on and on. This was not a dormitory for doctors. They typically sleep in the hospitals not in tunnels, meters and meters underground with bulletproof doors. They laid out all the ammunition and equipment that they found in the hospital facilities over the last 48 hours. Some of that was to be expected, weapons, ammunition, but some of that was wild, like scuba gear that the naval commando used 
and a bag that was marked with the insignia for the 60th anniversary of the Beri Kibbutz and Israeli sandals that they assume were brought there with a hostage. Laptops, drones that dropped, grenades, a bunch of equipment. There are bags of sand on the ground, there are children's clothes on the ground. There was no doubt that this is not just a regular hospital basement. This is a tunnel. It is wide enough for a couple of people to walk through at the same time. I just want to be super clear. This is the largest hospital in Gaza. Hamas turned it into a combat zone. The tunnel, the rooms, everything under the Qatari compound. And it's irrefutable. It's so close to the hospital that even if they were hiding in the middle of the night and digging it under the hospital, people would have heard. People should have known, and they probably did know, that there's something suspicious going on, even if the hospital staff didn't go into the tunnels themselves. They knew that Hamas was there. We started exposing this on October 27th with a detailed briefing that exposed some of our intelligence sources. What you've heard is just the tip of the iceberg. Whether it's rifles, RPGs, or terrorist tunnels, they have no business in a hospital. Imagine if Sloan Kettering in New York City had RPGs in the basement. If Great Ormond Street Hospital in London had assault rifles shoved under an MRI machine, you can't. But under Hamas rule in Gaza, that's the reality. There comes a point where if you don't believe the accrued evidence, it's because you don't want to. But for the safety of people around the world, there are certain fundamental principles that I hope we can all agree on. Hospitals should be a sacred place that cares for the sick and the innocent, not for terror. And speaking of medical care, I want to introduce you to Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Elbo-Arama. This is the flip side of medical care, providing truly devoted care. On the evening of October 6, 2023, which you probably remember was a holiday in Israel, Daniel was on vacation with his family, taking a break from his regular job, commanding an IDF medical center in southern Israel. Here's what that day job looks like. I'm the commander of Territorial Medical Center, which is located uh, very close to the city of Eilat. I'm responsible for the health of something like 15,000 soldiers. During routine times, as a commander of a Territorial Medical Center, I am the one that provides uh, the, the doctors with specialties. And I have a pharmacy at my base and I have all the labs. So if a soldier needs to do a blood test or when a soldier needs to take hearing tests, uh, if a soldier needs physical therapy or a dentist, those doctors are beneath my command. My center is the one that you are uh, referred to as a soldier in the South when you need all those things. Like most medical positions, it's exhausting and comes with huge responsibility. But this was a holiday and a weekend. So Daniel was looking forward to a well-deserved break with his family. My personal story of October 7th actually begins on October 6th. Because my husband and I, Mushiko, we were all going to a vacation with our three kids, Zariel and Amit. Oz and Ariel are twins. They are three and a half now. And Amit, she is very small. She was only two months old. Unfortunately, their vacation was close to the Gaza border. Very close. We were in a point that is actually southern than the city of Ofakim. And we were doing glamping. Those are tents with air condition. It was very nice with Mushiko's family. We did the Kiddush on Friday evening. The atmosphere was great. We were all very happy. It was amazing. That's when everything changed. Waking up at October 7th at 6.30 a.m. to the sounds of launches, I opened the tent and I looked towards the Gaza Strip and I immediately recognized hundreds of rockets being fired from the Gaza Strip towards the Israeli land. That was crazy. I woke up everybody, Moshiko in my tent, Moshiko's brother uh, that were there with his wife and his baby, one years old. 
and I woke up Mushik with mother and father. And I told everybody, listen, there are a lot of rockets now. We have to go out of here as fast as we can. Let's go back home. Everybody wake up. So we started organizing ourselves. Uh, in the meanwhile, there were sirens uh, going on and off because rockets were launched towards our positions as well. And we didn't have a shelter to go to or something. So we continued organizing ourselves, wanting to leave the glamping area. Daniel's family was the first out. His brother-in-law, Bar, followed right behind. And first, we drove our car, Mushiko, myself, and our three kids, then Mushiko's parents. And just five minutes after them, Bar, Mushiko's brother with his wife, Avigail, and their kid, Tommy, with the baby one-year-old, they were also coming out. Picture yourself in their situation. Very, very young kids with rockets flying around you. Unfortunately, those five minutes late that took for them to go after us, were five minutes too late because Bar's car was met by the terrorists of Hamas. And Bar recognized four terrorists on the car with black stripes on their foreheads. And they shot towards their car. They shot many, many bullets towards their car. Only God can explain how come nothing happened to them. They were not even injured. Not Bar, not Avigali, not the baby. You know what? Not even the dog. They had their dog with them. Rio, and not even the dog was hurt. They were okay for now, but the danger hadn't passed. The car didn't work anymore. They couldn't have driven the car. The terrorists thought that they were all dead, so they continued their journey of massacring others. Uh, in the meanwhile, Bara, Vigail, and the baby and the dog, they were all running from the car uh, into another guy car. And this guy took them to a kibbutz named Gevim, which is a few minutes driving from that point. And they managed uh, successfully to get uh, inside this kibbutz. And they were taken to one of the houses. Uh, the neighbors brought food and, and everything that they needed for themselves and for the baby. Remember, at this point, Daniel is still driving home and has no clue that this is happening to Bar and his family. We didn't understand what happened to them because we were driving towards Modin, our city. All of a sudden, we were getting a phone call from Moshiko's mother. Her name is Tali. And she was screaming over the phone and she was saying, oh my God, something happened to Bar. She even thought that maybe he had a heart attack or something. She couldn't have understood what was going on. And uh, it took us uh, a lot of time, a few very long minutes, to realize that Bar is actually alive and he survived everything. And that they are uh, in a safe uh, place now. It was crazy. Daniel's family was not out of danger either. And while we were driving home, a rocket hit, I don't know, 50 meters from our car. Um, just because so many rockets were launched from the Gaza Strip, one of them landed very close to my car. Very luckily, nothing happened to us besides of being extremely panicked because it's so frightening to have this kind of a very big boom. And I remember all the, the flash of the fire. But it was still just starting for Daniel. Remember, he's a medical officer in the IDF. So it was time to go to work. Eventually, we arrived home safely. I put Mushiko and the kids at home. I immediately put my uniform because, again, I was on a vacation. It is Saturday, right? I'm not in the army on Saturday in most cases. I put my uniform and I drove to my base. I drove to the Southern Command. And then I met my commander. And I said, what's going on? What can I do? How can I help? And then he said, Daniel, we have so many injured citizens and soldiers scattered all over the, the territory of the Gaza Strip in our side. And I need you to compose as uh, big and as many 
medical cruises, you can. And this is what I've done. I actually consolidated forces from the Southern Command, from the other division, uh, the 80 division, and from uh, all the brigades that I could. And this is how I actually uh, began my role as commanding all the ground medical forces in the October 7th events from uh, approximately 11 a.m. on Saturday until the following Thursday at uh, 8 a.m. And during this time, we have provided medicine to over 90 soldiers and citizens. And my crews saved many lives. And we were there for those people. And we are very proud. Let's fast forward. Over the next few weeks, the IDF would regroup, begin aerial strikes on Hamas targets, and then the ground maneuvers. When that started at the end of October, Daniel's mission changed. He wasn't running a team of doctors at a clinic near Eilat. He was managing IDF doctors and medics in the field, operating in Gaza. As we speak, I am responsible for the life of many of our soldiers that are now inside the Gaza Strip. And my job is to make sure that once something happens to them, they are evacuated, that they get the best medical attention that can be given. And if necessary, even the usage of helicopters from the strip to take the patients to the hospital. All the hospitals are in touch with me and I keep talking to them after the soldiers arrive still. This is what the IDF trains for, getting injured soldiers off the battlefield as quickly as possible. You can hear the pride he takes in the professionalism and excellence of his soldiers and officers in situations where every second can spell life or death. First of all, it's important to understand that, in my opinion, the IDF Medical Corps provides the best medical attention possible to be reached in field. Because in every battalion, we have several companies, and in every company, we have either a paramedic or a doctor that is going with the soldiers. Almost every soldier can see a paramedic or a doctor next to him when he looks for him in just a few minutes. And it's not just men who are saving lives in Gaza. Over 53 females that are paramedics and doctors inside the Gaza Strip now as we speak. I'm emphasizing the females fact because I think it's a thing to be proud of. Our females are the best and we have so many doctors and paramedics females inside the strip now that are doing an amazing job. So they deserve all the respect in the world. If you're a medical professional taking care of soldiers in the battlefield, your mission is to get to the wounded soldiers, stabilize them, and get them to a hospital as quickly as possible, sometimes while under fire. They are those who are responsible for the treatment of something uh, that happens to the soldier. But they are providing the very first intensive care needed. They cannot solve the problem. If someone gets, let's say, a bullet in his shoulder, then they can stop the bleeding, they can put a dress on it, they can even do a quick surgery in the field if it is necessary. But this soldier needs to get to a hospital. This is where I get inside the picture. There are several options. Maybe the soldier can be brought outside of the Gaza Strip by vehicles. So we have armored uh, vehicles, we have uh, special APCs, and we have tanks uh, as the way to take the patient out of the Gaza Strip. We can uh, use helicopters inside the Strip or outside the Strip. So my job is uh, to coordinate the helicopters, to speak with them over the radio and to say, I spoke with a paramedic in the battalion. And they say that we need the helicopter to arrive at, the, at this time to that location, et cetera, et cetera. I need to coordinate everything operationally because I want all the forces to know that our helicopter will arrive in a few minutes. And uh, this is actually my job. I'm not doing it alone, obviously. I have great officers beneath my command and we are doing it all together with our soldiers and we are doing a pretty good job in my opinion. We're gonna go down this rabbit hole. 
The helicopters are from the IDF's elite search and rescue unit called Sheshesh-Tesha, Unit 669. Imagine a cross between the Navy SEALs, Coast Guard, and the doctors from MESH. That's Unit 669. And today we're going to meet one of them. Because of the elite nature of the unit, his name has been redacted. We'll call him Sergeant G. My name is G. I serve on reserve on Unit 669 as a combat paramedic. I study medicine at Tel Aviv University, and I am here since the beginning of the war on, on my role as a special forces combat paramedic in the Air Force. Unit 669 is the special forces combat rescue unit. So our job basically is to rescue anyone, mostly soldiers, but anyone practically uh, anywhere in any time, in any condition. And also in addition to be able to rescuing soldiers from combat and pilots that had ejected their plane, we also uh, rescue civilians since Israel doesn't have a Coast Guard. So we also do that job as well. You've probably seen footage of Unit 669, whether you realize it or not. The soldiers dangling out of helicopters to rescue people at sea or lost hikers? That's Sergeant G and his team. And learning to do this is complicated. Every rescue soldier in Unit 669 needs to go through almost two years of training. They have to pass through several tryouts before you even draft into the Army. And after you're chosen out of thousands of teenagers that try to get into the beginning of the pipeline, you start, and because you need to be prepared to function and rescue from any kind of scenarios, you need to be also trained in any kind of scenario. That actually means you need to be trained in navigating, parachuting, diving, uh, free diving, uh, blowing stuff up, breaking into helicopters, any kind of full or adrenaline thing you could think about. A rescue soldier in Unit 669 needs to be trained up to jump into something that no one could imagine. Something no one could imagine is exactly what happened in southern Israel on October 7th. So the morning of October 7th, I was sleeping at my fiance's parents' house near Jerusalem. And I think it was 8.30. I get a phone call from one of the guys that are on mandatory service at the unit. And he asked, well, how fast can you get here? Once I arrive at the unit at 9.30 in the morning, me and two other rescue soldiers that are younger than me under mandatory service, they hand me over a year of one of the rescued soldiers that is on vacation now because it's a holiday. It's still early morning. Down south is absolute chaos, so the magnitude of the massacre is still unknown. Meanwhile, Sergeant G and his team are trying to get a handle on what's going on. We jump into a pickup truck, and we've been told to drive down south. So we ask, well, what's going on there? No one really knows. And as we're driving down south, we're listening to the news. And at that moment, the anchor on the news says that no one really knows how many injured people are, but there are estimations of maybe 200 People killed on an attack during an attack of terrorists from the Gaza Strip. And then we're driving down south and we're not sure what we're supposed to do. We're three guys in a pickup truck. Those reports were wrong. The scale of the massacre was much, much greater than anyone realized. We now know that over 1,200 people were killed and 239 were taken hostage. But it's still Saturday morning and that will all unfold over the next week. But the first time I, I get a glimpse of how different and unlike anything I've seen before, and I believe I've seen atrocities. I've seen injured people in their worst kind, refugees fleeing from wars in Africa, coming to Israel asking for help, refugees from civil war in Syria, Palestinians. I've treated Palestinians that ran away from the atrocities of Hamas in Gaza. They ran to the border with Israel to seek for help, but I've treated them personally. We flew them to the hospital in Israel, and I have never seen or anticipated something like this. And then he reached the Nova Music Festival. If you haven't heard about it, 
The Nova Music Festival was one of the most devastating scenes of carnage in the Hamas attack, an overnight nature party that turned into a bloody massacre. Reports now put the number of murdered at over 300. And we're driving down south and we get stuck in this traffic jam. There's a bunch of police cars and army vehicles in the middle of one of the roads and between the communities of the border with Gaza. And there are hundreds of bodies everywhere. People just screaming for help and bleeding and, and dead bodies everywhere. And I realized that they're all dressed up in this kind of colorful shirts and pants. And back then I didn't understand that it was a massacre of a festival. So I started running between casualties to trying to treat them to stop, stop bleeding. But at some point, the guy with me, one of the two guys with me, he stops me and said, well, we need to continue to where our mission is. They were being called to pitch in at one of the battle sites where soldiers were fighting with Hamas terrorists at one of the communities down south. We get back into the car, into our pickup truck, and I literally need to sit on my hands because it's so, it's against anything, everything I've ever been trained and pulled and practiced to. The casualties bleeding on the floor around me and, and just sitting in a pickup truck driving as fast as I can somewhere else. Then we arrive at one of the communities there and we join another unit that started uh, fighting in an attempt to liberate their people held hostages. And we join the combat there within the community. This would repeat itself again and again. Afterwards, we continue to Faraza, which is another kibbutz. And for the rest of the night, I uh, run the, the place where there's a mass casualty, hundreds of casualties, not only soldiers that are wounded in the battle there with the terrorists, but also hundreds of civilians, women, children, elderly, so many gun wounds and People that, you know, you have someone that needed meds and just was hiding beneath, under a bed for an uh, 80-year-old person for the whole day and you need to treat him. I mean, there were hundreds of bodies. Wherever we didn't have a chance to save, we just had to say we're not dealing with this right now. The battles continued through the night and into sunrise the next day. At this point, Sergeant G has been fighting and treating the wounded for about 20 hours straight. He wasn't done. At dawn, he was sent to Kibbutz Beri, now known as one of the hardest-hit communities. Once this ended and the IDF began operations in Gaza, Sergeant G was sent into battle zones to evacuate wounded soldiers, using some of the emergency procedures that Daniel described earlier. And it's all taking place in the most challenging conditions a medical professional can imagine. And it's mostly using our, our skills to work as a team with no using words and be under a lot of pressure and perform the most complicated medical procedures. You also can't see the patient. You need to assess them just by the feeling of how, how literally that patient, that injured person that's bleeding in your hands, how his body is, is functioning and to make very complicated decisions sometimes medical wise, while you don't have all the details that you need on that patient because you know that if you don't do something, you most likely will die. But if you perform that medical procedure, you're also putting him in danger. And you need to be able to treat him while people, while you have someone shooting over your head because you're in the battlefield and you are trying to get out of there. As you heard from Daniel and G, our forces are in the best of hands, but who looks after them? After all, the medics on the scene on October 7th were exposed to the worst of Hamas's atrocities, torture, mutilation, rape, and beheadings. I asked Daniel how he's looking out for the mental health of his first responders. I think that the best way to handle those uh, challenges uh, mentally is first of all to command the soldiers by being calm and being very precise 
and explaining what is the mission and talking with them all the time, not only during uh, cases uh, in which we treat patients. We need to talk after. We do an after-action review after each uh, case. And we are talking and we are eating and we are drinking uh, water and we are going to sleep as much as possible. And I'm making sure that my soldiers are taking showers. I'm dividing all the work between everybody in an equal way that allows them to rest. And I am there for them. We are talking about everything. We are giving legitimacy to feelings, to behaviors. We were witnessing irregular things. Therefore, our behavior, our behavior is irregular also. Daniel practices what he preaches. When you are seeing an extraordinary, not normal things, then you will probably uh, feel extraordinary and not normal feelings that you didn't have before. This is all actually normal. And you need to normalize it. I can share personally that I am uh, taking a professional help now. Uh, I had never taken it before, uh, but uh, those events have uh, brought me to the point of understanding that I need help. And I see it as a positive example to my soldiers. If someone asks me, then I tell them, yes, I actually go to a therapy now and I'm very much okay with it. I think uh, it's a good thing to do. And uh, we are all people, right? If someone has an acute throat something, then he might be given antibiotics, right? And that's not a shame to take antibiotics for your uh, throat if you have a bacteria. Then if you have something mentally going on because of being exposed to crazy stuff, then this is not a shame to go and to treat those crazy stuff that happened to your soul. For me, the stark contrast between how medical facilities are abused in Gaza and how our medical staff conducts themselves on the front lines underscores exactly what we're fighting for. From the scenes that Masha witnessed, wide-scale and broad abuse of hospitals, to Daniel's waking up on the morning of October 6th, driving his children home and driving back to the field, and to Sergeant G, out there on the battlefield in Gaza saving lives. You can find more about what we found under Shifa on our website at idf.il. As I mentioned last time, the battle we're facing has extended to the digital realm as well. You can help us out by sharing the podcast or giving us a five-star review. Until next time, my name is Major Libby Weiss. This was your fourth Mission Brief. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Mission Brief, produced by the IDF. We hope this conversation sheds light on the experiences and challenges of those who serve and protect our country. The open threat to destroy us. Trailing commanders achieve.